us the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we're still on our road trip, road trip 2015. Days three and four were spent in the city of Chicago. We're going to tell you a little bit about our stay there, the history and hauntings of Chicago. Had a fabulous time. We really enjoyed Chicago. I'd never been there before. And my opinion, Denise, of Chicago was always, oh, it's one of those big, dirty, noisy, just, you know, regular type of downtown cities. Not some place that I'd ever been like, oh, I've got to go see it. Boy, was I wrong. It was a beautiful, beautiful city. We really want to go back and visit. We wanted to go down to the Riverwalk and do some of the other things that we weren't able to do on this trip. For those of you who are members of the Spectacular crew over on the group page at Facebook, you got, I guess you could call it treats, <laughs> yesterday, we posted a bunch of videos, I don't know, six or seven, maybe even eight of them, of different historic haunted locations or cemeteries that we visited yesterday and we shared some of that with everybody. We will talk a bit about those sites today on the show, but if you want to see us doing it in action live on camera and Denise getting windblown because Denise, what is Chicago known as? The Windy City. And it certainly was. Her hair was all over the place. So if you want to see those, those were at the Spectacular Crew over on the group page. As we say, you should join up because we do put special things up there that other people don't get to see. When we get to a place where we have some time, some Wi-Fi, I will try to get those videos up on our YouTube page and we'll send them out in the newsletter too, or at least the links to them in the, the newsletter. So if you're not a member of the newsletter or of the Spectacular Crew, probably want to join one of those two things. Absolutely free for both. All right, so why don't we, we're traveling through Iowa right now. <laughs> We just stopped in Dubuque, Iowa. And we just came through Wisconsin, too, which we hadn't planned on going through Wisconsin, but that's the way she took us, so. Yeah, we just follow whatever the little lady on the GPS that we're usually cursing at tells us to do. Well, I curse <laughs> at her. Denise is like, who's we? Dubuque's a nice town. Talk about a lot of old, beautiful buildings. They haven't destroyed a lot of their old structures there. So we went through the downtown area and looked at a lot of the buildings down there. Very, very neat guy at the gas station was really nice too. Of course, we were waiting. You know, there's always that one person that looks at you when you're in a smaller town, like, what the hell are you doing here? They could probably see the license plate from Florida. And you're always waiting for people to say, what are you doing in Dubuque, Iowa? And I was going to say, beats the hell out of me. Because <laughs> I wasn't planning on being here. I just followed the GPS and going to my sister's farmhouse here in Iowa. Believe me, I don't know that they're... Nothing against any of you Iowans, if you're listening, but I don't know any other reason why I would come to the state. All right. Well, why don't we tell you a little bit about the history of Chicago? The first permanent resident was a trader named Jean-Baptiste Point du Sabel. He was a free black man who had come from Haiti, and this was in the late 1770s. In 1795, the U.S. government built Fort Dearborn, at what is now the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive. So this would have been in the heart of downtown Chicago because we drove those streets yesterday, Denise. Yeah, they came 
again and again and again. It's a little bit challenging to navigate through Chicago. Fort Dearborn was burned to the ground by Native Americans in 1812. They rebuilt it, and it was demolished in 1857. We were going to try to go by that site, but we just didn't get time. We have family in Chicago, so we spent some time with them as well. Chicago was a trading center. It was incorporated as a city in 1837. It was situated in a perfect place for anybody who wanted to set stuff westward for all the westward expansion that was going on. There was the Illinois and Michigan Canal that was completed in 1848, and this made a water link between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. But the canal was soon rendered obsolete by railroads, and there's a lot of railroads that go through Chicago. 50% of U.S. rail freight continues to pass through Chicago even today. And of course, most people know they've got the big airports there too, specifically O'Hare Airport, which is the only place that I've been in Chicago many times. And um, same with me. I did have a conference one weekend in Chicago, but we were in the hotel. So I've been at O'Hare, a hotel, and one pizza place until this trip. And the Great Fire of Chicago happened in 1871. Several of the haunted locations that we visited yesterday became haunted due to the Great Fire of 1871 that just ripped through and basically destroyed everything. Now, when the city was built, they decided that they wanted to raise it up five eight feet because they wanted to put in a sewer system and when they rebuilt the city they weren't real smart about it you know we've talked about how brick was the best thing to build with Denise yes absolutely well they decided to build with wood and what happens when you mix fire with wood it burns indeed so that was why the city was so flammable so of course most of it the streets sidewalks everything burned to the ground the chicago fire department training academy which was at 558 west to coven street is where the actual fire began the chicago water tower and pumping station at michigan and chicago avenues was one of the only buildings to survive and we'll tell you a little bit more about that chicago came to be known as the white city it rebuilt itself quite quickly And the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 came to the city. And this was only 22 years after they rebuilt. So that's how quickly they got it rebuilt and ready to take on a huge endeavor like that. The nation's first skyscraper, it was a 10-story steel-framed home insurance building, was built in Chicago. This was in 1884. It was at LaSalle and Adams Streets. In 1931, it was demolished. And the start of the historic Route 66, which begins at Grant Park on Adams Street in front of the Art Institute of Chicago, was there. Which is interesting because Denise and I were just talking about, we've been doing a lot of, what do we call it, hometown America, hometown USA today? Because we're on a lot of the smaller highways today and going through some small towns. And we were wondering, where is Route 66 and how far does it run and how many states? I didn't know that it was part of the route starts right there in Chicago. I know, and I think it runs because it goes all the way over into Colorado and down there because we've seen parts of it on different trips we've done. So we'll have to look that up. And as we were coming into the city, we see this huge black building. And what was that, Denise? Uh, That would have been the Sears Tower. Yeah, so we're like, that has to be the Sears Tower. It is 1,450 feet. It was completed in 1974. It is the tallest building in North America, the third tallest in the world. So it was an amazing structure to see. And any of the buildings there, when you get up next to them and you're looking up, yeah, Denise got to experience vertigo again. So that's just some of the beginnings for Chicago, just a brief little history there. We want to talk about some of the sites that we hit yesterday. Of course, Chicago is 
basically the headquarters for the mafia. There's a lot of crime that has taken place in the city. A lot of stuff has gone on in that city. So one of the first places we went to yesterday was Al Capone's grave, which is located at Mount Carmel Cemetery. And as we walked through, it wasn't only Al Capone. We noticed lots and lots of gangsters, famous gangsters, are buried there in the cemetery. So it was only fitting after visiting Al Capone's grave that we went to a site that was a historical site we've covered in a previous podcast. I believe Dan Foytik posted it yesterday for us. I think it was episode 28. So if you catch that one, that should be on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. We went to that site. We filmed a little video there. And as people who've listened to that podcast know, it's actually the building's not there anymore. The building where the lookouts kept watch across the street is still there. But now there's basically a nursing home, a gate, and just a little nice sitting area where the SMC Cartage Building once stood on North Clark Street. And I don't want to get into too many of the details because we already covered it in the podcast, but this is where Bugs Moran was supposed to meet his end, and this was the plan of Al Capone. Both these men, Bugs and Capone, were fighting over control of Chicago. Al Capone decided the best way to take care of this and to get a little bit of revenge for a previous assassination for one of his cohorts was to take out Bugs Moran. Unfortunately, he did not succeed in doing that because Bugs Moran was running late that day. He saw a commotion going on at the building because Al Capone's guys dressed up as cops and they were going to pretend like they were raiding this building because it was supposedly a place where they had a lot of bootleg liquor and there was supposed to be a whiskey shipment coming in. At least that's what Bugs Moran's men thought. But there was no whiskey shipment. It was a trick. These guys dressed up as cops. They go in there. Bugs Moran sees what's going on. He decides to take a little detour, not go back to, you know, not go to the building, get arrested. So he takes off. Later on, of course, he finds out that a bunch of his men were lined up against a wall and they were shot. Seven of them. John May, Adam Heyer. He was the guy who owned the building. Peter Gusenberg and his brother Frank. Albert Weinshank. Reinhard Schwimmer and Albert Kachelik. All seven of them were lined up against the wall. They were shot with 45, two Tommy guns, and a sawed-off shotgun. The faces of May and Kachelik were so obliterated they were unrecognizable. Seventy rounds of ammunition were fired. So were they lined up and shot or lined up and obliterated? I mean, they were, they were like massacred. And one of the sad notes about this is that the building is no longer there. It did become a furniture store shortly thereafter, and it was a tourist attraction for a while. People would pretend like they were going into the furniture store to shop just so they could see the wall with all the bullet holes in it. Eventually, that building was destroyed. A man came in, bought the wall, took it apart, took it over to a bar, put that wall up in the bathroom behind some plexiglass and made it a little tourist attraction there in the men's bathroom. So if the ladies wanted to see it, all they had to do was ask nicely. So they would get to see it. Eventually, that bar went out of business. The wall was taken down. The guy who owned all those bricks was selling them off one by one. Then he stopped doing it. Nobody's sure exactly where all those bricks ended up going or if they still exist to this day. As we mentioned earlier, the one structure that survived in downtown Chicago during the Great Fire was the water tower. This was a really neat building, Denise. It was amazing. I couldn't look at it real closely because I was trying to, again, navigate through Chicago. And if you've never driven in Chicago, I either don't recommend it unless you want a challenge, go for it. Yeah, you either have people who step out and cross wherever they want to, 
the lanes. You'll be driving down a lane and all of a sudden you're like, wow, the cars in front of me aren't moving anymore. Oh, wait, it's turned into a parking lane. So during certain hours of the day, what is normally a driving lane becomes a parking lane. So it was pretty crazy for us to get around there. And of course, trying to park in any big city downtown area is either expensive, hard to find. So we did a drive-by of the water tower. Well, unfortunately, I was doing the video on my cell phone and I didn't realize that when you turn the cell phone to get maybe a better view, that the video doesn't register it correctly. So half the video was sideways. So we ended up getting rid of it because it just, you, you couldn't see and it just looked ridiculous. So we weren't able to make the video for the water tower. But during that, I explained that this building was made out of limestone and it looks like a castle. It's just, it's magnificent. I just thought it was great. So thankfully it did survive the fire. The fire took place on October 8th. And even though the Chicago history officially says that it started at a fire station. It is also reported that it started at the O'Leary farm. And by the time the fire was done, 2,000 acres had been burned and virtually every structure in its path. 300 people had died. The only thing that really stopped the fire was two days later on October 10th, it started to rain and this helped to extinguish the flames. Now there was a guy who was a water worker working at the water tower and he was trying to help put out the fire, and he was very dedicated. So he stayed with the tower, and a legend arose around that. Legend suggests the worker remained in the tower pumping water until it was no longer successful. Believing that death was imminent, the waterworks employee climbed the tower stairs and hung himself in an attempt to escape a fiery death. So, of course, the water tower is haunted. Multiple reports have been made citing an image of a man hanging in the upper windows of the old water tower. Could it be a residual vision of a tragic event that took place over a hundred years ago? No one knows for sure, but the next time you visit Chicago, peer into the windows of the old water tower and decide for yourself. Then we made our way down to another location that made it stamp during the Great Fire in Chicago. And this today, this is another castle-like structure. So it was very popular, I guess, during the time. This place is now today called Excalibur Nightclub. Now, what this used to be was the Chicago Historical Society. They had a building they'd built on that site. And during the Great Fire, it was reduced to ashes. So this building is a brand new, it's not brand new, but it was a rebuilt building. They decided, the Chicago Historical Society decided to rebuild. And so that's what stands there to this day. Now, hundreds of people came to the building seeking shelter because they were told that the building was fireproof. Now, as we all know today, there's no building that's fireproof. It's just like the Titanic was unsinkable. So people got trapped inside and they were burned. And not only do we possibly have that kind of residual energy going on there, but there was another horrible event that had taken place in Chicago, the Eastland disaster. The Eastland was a ship. It had sunk and a lot of people on board drowned. And the closest place for these people to come was to downtown Chicago. So there were several locations in downtown Chicago that were used as a morgue. As a matter of fact, Harpo Studios, where Oprah Winfrey used to film her show, is one of the locations that was used as a morgue and is reportedly haunted to this day. Excalibur Nightclub was also used as a temporary morgue. Patrons and employees of the nightclub have witnessed strange apparitions, and there have been multiple reports of people being pushed downstairs and over railings by an invisible force. In addition, one lonely candle located high up on a wall, out of reach without a ladder, has a strange habit of lighting itself, much to the confusion of the nightclub's employees. Party here if you dare, just make sure you watch your footing 
on those sinister steps because people report being pushed down them occasionally. So there's another location that we didn't get a chance to stop by because of the traffic and everything. It's called Death Alley. This is an alley that's behind the Oriental Theater. And what used to be in that area was the Iroquois Theater. Again, this was another building that was considered to be fireproof. Horrible fire broke out there. It was mostly women and children during the day who were there. A curtain caught on fire, and it basically just, the whole stage went up. Of course, they didn't have the kind of exits that they require nowadays. So people, again, as it happens with a lot of these fires in big buildings, were crushed to death, were trapped, and burned to death. This happened on December 30th in 1903. There were 2,000 people inside, so just horrible. In the ensuing panic, there was asphyxiation, trampling. 602 people, which included 212 children, were killed. It took police and fire crews nearly five hours to recover bodies from the building. Many were stacked in the alley, waiting to be transported and identified. So now, Death Alley is considered to be haunted. Faint cries, cold spots, and the touch of unseen hands are frequently reported in the rarely used alley. Next, we ventured on to the Jane Adams Hull House. And what's the legend that goes with this house? Oh, that one is the Devil Baby. Yeah, so that pretty much tells you everything you need to know right there. This is attached to the university there, and it was it's a memorial to social reformer Jane Adams. She was the first American woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and she changed the lives for a lot of immigrants who were coming here to America. Now, this house has supposedly been haunted long before Jane Addams ever lived there, and it was because of this thing called the Devil Baby. It was a settlement house that was called the Hull House. The Devil Baby was a child rumored to have been born in 1913 with cloven hooves, horns, and reptilian skin. And the reason why was because his father welcomed a curse from the devil. So I don't know what deal was made there, but uh, didn't work out so well for the poor baby. Apparently the baby was kept up in the attic, and that is where most of the haunting activity takes place. Jane Addams actually believed this, and she lived there, so I don't know if she had some experiences. But she wrote about this persistent folktale in the Atlantic in 1916. Visitors would come to see the baby lots of them and it was believed that one of the reasons why the child was locked in the attic is because they were never able to baptize him they tried but for some reason they never could and of course with all things like that i always wonder if it was a baby that was born with some of the things that we know of today you know that they used to consider the baby's freaks or evil or possessed by evil spirits and so it'd be interesting to know what the baby really had because i don't think it was the devil no i'm betting if this legend is true that it was probably a deformed child. Another location in downtown Chicago, we weren't able to hit this one, is the Congress Plaza Hotel. The Congress Plaza Hotel was built to accommodate traffic during the World Fair in Chicago, was later a hot spot for gangsters like Al Capone. So of course the hotel has seen its share of gore, violence, and as a result it is said to have several frequently appearing apparitions. A longtime security guard described frequent sightings of the ghost of a young boy in the North Tower whose mother threw him off the roof before taking her own life and jumping. A female ghost is seen in the banquet room. She whispers in the ears of anyone who happens to enter alone. So don't go in there by yourself, Denise. And the shadowy outline of a woman in room number 441 has been seen. Security is called 
more than once to that room. We also hit the Murder Castle site, Denise. That one, I mean, now it's just a post office, but this story really creeps me out. This guy was a sick, sick, sick man. Herman Webster Mudgett. That was his real name, but most of you may have heard of him as H.H. Holmes. He was a very prolific serial killer, and he's believed to be one of America's first serial killers, at least recorded. Now, his murderous ambitions probably started when he was a child, and definitely he had some weird inclinations when he got into medical school. He liked to steal bodies, disfigure their faces, and he was a fraudster, and he continued to be a fraudster as in his whole life. So he would take out insurance policies on people. Then he would say these dead bodies that they were supposed to be doing medical experiments and research with were these people who had died and he would collect on their insurance policies. And because the faces were so disfigured, they couldn't prove that he was lying. He would continue to go on to take out insurance policies on other people and then kill them. That was one of the main reasons why he built the murder castle. It was basically to kill people so he could make money, which I think makes him one of the sickest psychopaths out there. He was married to three women at one time, so he was a bigamist as well. Around 1885, he purchased a drugstore in Chicago and a plot of land across from the drugstore where he began construction on a building that would become a place of horrors for possibly hundreds of people. What we now today call the Murder Castle was completed and opened as a hotel in 1893, and this was to coincide with the World's Fair as well. So the Congress Plaza Hotel was built, well, so was the Murder Castle. It was the pinnacle of a sinister and macabre plan by Holmes. The hotel was built near a railroad so that Holmes would have easy access to visitors. So he would go out and he would mingle with the people and tell them, hey, I've got great rooms. Look, I have this posh hotel. It looked very posh on the outside. You walk into the lobby, just looked like fancy pants. Wasn't real expensive. People were looking for a place to say, come on in, stay at my hotel. Only it was one of those places that was kind of like the Hotel California, Denise. Once you went in, There was no coming back out. You can come in, but you can never leave. What most people did not know, including the contractors who built the hotel, was that the building housed mazes, chutes, toxic gas lines, doors that opened only from the outside, and other terrors. No contractor knew the complete plans because homes would either fire them or kill them before they could complete whatever they were doing. So it was just very confused for all them. Nobody knew exactly what his plans were. The chutes were built to facilitate the transfer of bodies to gurneys where Holmes could either conduct experiments on them, torture the living victims, or dissect bodies. And one of the things he loved to do is to put the bodies in lye, and so then it would take all the flesh off, and then he would sell the skeletons to medical schools. Made a lot of money doing that, too. It was confirmed that Holmes killed nine people, but he wrote a confessional in which he admitted to 27 murders. Holmes' great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, has written the book Bloodstains, and he details the life of Holmes. He claims that the number of murders could be upwards of a 1,000. Considering the proximity to the World's Fair and the secrets of the murder castle, we think that that number is pretty accurate, or at least it could be in the hundreds. Jeff Mudgett also thinks that H.H. Holmes could possibly be Jack the Ripper. He was in London during the murders, and he had the doctor skills needed for the delicate organ removal. And definitely the the M.O., like the profiling matched both. I mean, they, they both did the same types of things. So, And then, of course, we know Jack the Ripper's work ended abruptly was that when H.H. Holmes came back to America. 
He was eventually arrested, convicted, sentenced to death. He was hung in 1896. He was 34 years at that time. His grave needed to be concealed and protected by concrete because they wanted to keep grave robbers from doing anything to him or stealing the body. And so there's no marker where his grave is, and he is buried under concrete. Of course, because they killed Holmes before they knew all the truth, and they destroyed the building pretty quickly, we'll never know who all his victims were. Of course, there wasn't DNA back then. So we'll never know the numbers, the people, any of that. So that is a bit of a sad part to this. And a lot of the bodies he either put in lime or burnt. So they don't even have the remains for these people. But as Denise mentioned today, it's just a post office. But the basement is still there and is reportedly haunted. And people who work at the post office have reported lots of strange things going on. H.H. Holmes himself has been seen walking around the outside of the building. And people sometimes in some of the old dress that you would have seen during the Chicago World's Fair are seen on the outside. This is definitely not a place to go at night, though. It's not a very nice part of town. And so, um, but that might not be all. Isn't there some rumor that he might have not been finished once they killed him? That is true. I believe three or four of the people that were involved with his arrest and his trial ended up dying under mysterious circumstances as well. One of them, I know for sure, committed suicide. So people wonder, did H.H. Holmes continue to murder in the afterlife? Does he still haunt the area around the murder castle? That is for you to decide. And then we headed on down to Resurrection Cemetery. This is a huge cemetery. It's one of the largest cemeteries in North America. 540 acres, and there's about 152,000 graves there. 5,300 other graves that are in, or you should say crypts, that are in the mausoleum. There's a huge mausoleum there. This is a beautiful graveyard. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And there was one area that we go to a lot of graveyards, and it was like all kind of different colors, but a lot of black. I don't know what kind of stone um, grave markers and just different colors, and they were painted. It was very, very colorful, which I'm not used to seeing in a grave outside of the flowers. Yes, and this was a Catholic cemetery. As a matter of fact, all the cemeteries around there seem like they're Catholic. And so there's a lot of statuary involved. And the statuary that went with this, uh, it was like black obsidian and, and colorful granite. And there was the statues were gold and silver. And it was, I've never seen such ornate structures. And it was all in just a couple of different plots sections were set up that way. So it was almost like, if you want to be buried here, you better be really ornate about it. And of course, they had a lot of uh, separate family mausoleums. And it's called Resurrection Cemetery in remembrance of the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And there is a large statue memorial area there that is known as the Resurrection of Christ. And this is situated near the, the cemetery's chapel. It's a really neat structure. We focused on that when we did our video yesterday because of someone who likes to hang out there. Uh, could that someone possibly have been Resurrection Mary? She likes to dance around it. Now, while we were filming, we didn't see anybody dancing around it. We invited her to if she wanted to. Which I, in keeping who I am, told Diane, stop tempting the spirits. <laughs> yes, indeed. She didn't want me to say, come on, Mary, come on out and dance for us. But this is one of her favorite spots to hang out is where the statuary is. Her grave is at Resurrection Cemetery. Now, you'll read in some places that it's a nondescript marker, hard to find, that they usually won't tell you where it is. The truth of the matter is that part of this cemetery was bulldozed somewhere around World War II, and her gravestone was removed at that time so nobody really knows for sure where she's buried and 
This is a legend. And as we like to say about urban legends, all of them start with a little bit of truth. And then when you get to the end, you're not really sure exactly what the true story is. And there are a couple stories that go with Resurrection Mary. So if she's the one story, then this grave would pertain to her. If it's another story about her, well, then maybe the grave story doesn't pertain to her. But maybe that's why she's a little bit at unrest is because her grave has been messed with, removed, can't be found. Now, the one story goes that she's Mary Bragova, who died in an automobile accident on March 10th, 1934. She was born April 7th, 1912. And she was waked at the Satalia Funeral Home. John Satalia remembers preparing the body and how she was dressed. She had a very pretty orchid dress on. He remembers having to stitch part of her face due to the accident. It was reported in the Chicago Tribune on March 11, 1934. Girl killed in crash, Miss Mary's Bergovia, 21 years old, was killed last night when the auto in which she was riding cracked up at, uh, they're missing the street name, and Wacker Drive. John Riker, 23, suffered a possible skull fracture and is in the county hospital, so apparently he was driving. The other car that hit them was driven by John Toll, 25, and he had his girlfriend in the car, Miss Virginia Rosansky, 22. They were only shaken up and scratched. The scene of the accident is known to police as a danger spot. Thole told police he did not even see the other car. Resurrection Mary has been seen by more people than any other single ghost within the Chicagoland area. She's reported to have blonde hair, blued eyes. She's beautiful. And she's been seen since the latter 1930s. One of the first persons to have encountered her was a Southside man by the name of Gerald Palace. He liked to go to Liberty Grove and Hall. And this was a dancing place. He saw her there. He decided to ask her to dance. He noticed that her hands were ice cold to the touch. He even commented to her, Wow, you have cold hands, warm heart. She didn't reply to him. At 11.30 p.m., he decided it's time to go. He offered her a ride, and she accepted. She told him she lived in the Bridgeport area of Chicago. But instead of going to that area, she said, can you go down Archer Road here? So he went down. As they began to approach the main gates of Resurrection Cemetery, she asked Paulus to pull the car off the road. She then informed him that she had to cross the road and that Paulus could not follow. This statement took him aback, but before he could respond, she suddenly darted across the street towards the cemetery and disappeared before she ever reached the gates. It was only then that he realized that he had been with a ghost that evening. She was also seen in 1978 by Sean and Jerry Lape. They were driving along. She ran out into the street in front of the car. The woman yelled, watch out for that woman. And the guy said he didn't have enough time to break. So he thought for sure he was going to hit her. And just as they came upon her, she completely disappeared. There is an Irish pub that's down the road that she is said to haunt. She moves dishes around, glasses around, cold spots. She's been seen there. And then across from this Irish pub is the Willbrook Ballroom. We stopped outside of the Willowbrook Ballroom. This is a dance hall today, and it was a dance hall back then as well. It was called one of America's swingingest meccas. It was founded in 1921 by John Vierderbar. It was supposed to be an outdoor dance hall. It was known as O. Henry Park. The establishment came to grow and flourish through the 1920s until 1930 when disaster struck and the complex burned to the ground. Out of the ashes rose the O. Henry Ballroom. So they made it into a building rather than an outdoor dance hall. It was built at a staggering cost of $100,000. The 1930s and 40s found hundreds of thousands in the mood to swing as the ballroom became home to the biggest and best bands of the day, complete with its own restaurant, soda fountain, and flower shop. By the 1950s, a series of additional lounges and restaurants were added, including the elegant 200-seat Willbrook Room. Now, the reason why this comes into play is this is possibly 
the last place that Mary was seen alive. Apparently, and here's the other story that goes with her legend, this Mary was there with her boyfriend. They got into a fight. She decided she was not going to go home with him, that she would hitchhike home. Somewhere between the ballroom and the main gates of the Resurrection Cemetery, which is about two miles long, she was struck and killed by a hit-and-run motorist and left to die on the side of the road. A few years after that, a girl in a long white dress and blonde hair was seen thumbing for rides along Archer Avenue, and people see her to this day doing that. One of the people who had a mysterious encounter with her was a taxi cab driver. His name was Ralph. He reported his experience this way. It was Thursday night. Would have been two weeks ago when I was lost, basically. I dropped this big spender way the hell down in Palos Heights or Hills or someplace like that and was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned on to Archer down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. There she was. She was standing there with no coat on by the entrance to this little shopping center with no coat. And it was real cold. She didn't put out her thumb or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. Of course, I stopped. I figured maybe she had car trouble or something. She hopped right in the front seat. She had on this fancy kind of white dress like she'd just been to a wedding or something. And those new kind of disco type shoes with the straps. She was a looker, a blonde. I didn't have ideas or anything like that. She was young enough to be my daughter, 21 tops. I asked her where she was going and she said she had to get home. I asked her what was wrong, if she'd had car trouble or what but she didn't really answer me she seemed fuzzy maybe she'd had a couple of drinks or something or was just tired i don't know the only thing she did really say was the snow came early this year or the snows came early this year or something like that other than that she just nodded when i asked sometimes if we were supposed to just keep going up archer she was just looking out the window at the snow and the trees and that her mind was a million miles away maybe she smoked something who knows a couple of miles up Archer there, she jumped with a start like a horse and said, Here, here. I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see any kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks out her arm and points across the street to my left and says, There. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left like this at this little shack. And when I turned, she was gone. Vanished. And the door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. Now, Ralph was embarrassed about this story. He was afraid that nobody would believe him. So he would never give his last name. But he always maintained that this actually did happen. So Denise, those were just some of the highlights of the Chicago tour that we planned for ourselves and took some of you who watched the videos on with us. We hope you enjoyed this show that we've given to you. We're heading to my sister's farm. So we thought it'd be interesting to maybe do something about haunted farmland in Iowa. We'll see what we come up with for the next podcast we put up. We do know that the farm we're going to is haunted and what part of it um, i believe it's the barn the big barn so we'll see what we get thanks for joining us for this one i've been your host diane and this has been denise you take care now bye bye <laughs>